Welcome to the Thomas Industry Update Podcast, actionable information for industry leaders. I'm Tony Uphoff. Entrepreneurship is often seen as a bastion of lean, forward-thinking startups. But these agile, early-stage businesses aren't the only ones with the capacity to develop game-changing products and services. As we'll explore in today's podcast, the entrepreneurial approach of developing new solutions to address industry problems can also be found in established businesses with decades of experience. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Sean Amarati, who is an author, venture capitalist, Carnegie Mellon professor, and the co-founder and director of the Carnegie Mellon Corporate Startup Lab. As Sean explains, the interdisciplinary corporate startup lab originally began as a research question. How are startups in a proverbial garage similar or different from startups inside an established company that may be decades old? And what takeaways can corporations learn from agile startups and the tech industry at large to then apply to their own business models? In today's episode, we'll discuss the lessons that established large-scale businesses can learn from agile startups, the accelerating shift from digital transformation to business model innovation, and why manufacturing business leaders should see themselves as entrepreneurs to better solve industry-wide challenges. Hey, Sean, first off, thanks so much for joining us. I've been looking forward to this conversation, or should I say the continuation of many of our conversations. And I want to start with a quote I heard from you and and see if you can't help put it into context, because I think it just relates to so much of what's going on out there. I heard you once say that every boardroom in the world right now is asking, what's our Disney Plus moment? Yeah. First of all, Tony, yeah, thanks for having me on on your podcast. And it's been fun to to chat with you over, I think, topics we'll probably touch on today a lot over the last couple of years. And and our history obviously goes back much, much longer than that. But this this Disney Plus moment that you're talking about. So, you know, one of the things I think that's interesting is that when you think about conversations at the board level, there tend to be kind of topics du jour that all of a sudden, you know, pop up and every board feels like they need to have a strategy around it. So if you think over the last, you know, roughly decade, it started, I think, with when the when Steve Jobs introduced the iPhone and more than even the iPhone introduced the the app store and you had every executive board trying to figure out, okay, what's our app strategy? And I think Interestingly, some companies came up with some great answers to that. I think other companies kind of forced their answers into that. But all of a sudden, you saw a very different approach to how they thought about delivering value to their customers and companies that wouldn't have thought about themselves as as media or content distributors all of a sudden kind of reframing what they're doing when they're saying, okay, we, we need to build a an app to complement the other value that we're delivering to our customers or deliver it in this new way. Then, you know, over the last few years, you've seen a lot of conversations around boardrooms looking at like, well, what's our AI and machine learning strategy? And and I, I think in both those cases, the reason is not just that, hey, that was a tech megatrend that we needed to pay attention to, but it also was that it's a tech megatrend that they had personally experienced in their non-professional life and then were reflecting back on, you know, okay, well, how can that influence what I do as a occupation, right? So I think the reason 
the iPhone was so compelling, right? Is because many of those same board members had used the iPhone, watched their kids use the iPhone, right? There, there were all these sort of anecdotes that they had, oh, wow, this is really powerful. I need to make sure my organization's part of that. And certainly over the last couple of years, we've had other, we've had similar kind of magical B2C experiences happen because of AI and machine learning. And so that makes it easier to have these conversations about, okay, what can I do for us in the enterprise? And you've seen things like robotic process automation and, and AI and ML doing automation of, of routine cognitive professional tasks, I think explode because they we first had this context of what it was like in a B2C setting. Now to, to the Disney Plus point, I think every executive and, and every sort of uh, independent director as well, they, like all these board members have had the same experience as it relates to Disney Plus. It wasn't that long ago that analysts and journalists were rushing to shovel dirt on the grave of Disney and you know saying that well, Netflix is this competitor that can't be this insurmountable competitor. Then all of a sudden, I think what Disney did is Disney made a decision, hey, it's time to play offense, not defense. What are our unfair competitive advantages as it relates to the businesses that we're in? And, and the answer was not that different from the answer that it's been for a long time, right? The answer is that like Disney has content and franchises around those content that are extremely valuable. Your kids need basically food, water, and Mickey Mouse, it seems like, uh, and clothing maybe, <laughs> right? And so so like there's there's real leverage in having that. And all of a sudden, Disney has flipped the script and said, okay, Based on that unfair competitive advantage, we're going to come out with Disney Plus, and the market response to it has been just absolutely tremendous. Right, millions of people signing up for it. I think for quite a while it was a million signups a day on the platform, and Wall Street loved it, consumers loved it, and all of a sudden it completely changed people's perspectives on what's the the large brand new tech company doing to battle the incumbent. And all of a sudden you see the incumbents battling back with the unfair advantages that they have. And, and I think Disney, the, the sort of legacy business saying, you know what, this Silicon Valley tech first startup, there's a great path for us to actually aggressively play offense, not defense. So that's, that's the experience we've all had as consumers. Now, why is this conversation happening in the boardrooms? Because I think companies need to ask themselves those same questions. Okay, what can we do like Disney in the context that we're in? How do we look at the assets and the unfair competitive advantage that we have and apply it to the industries and the, the customers that we serve? Sean, I think it's such a great insight. And I start our conversation with that example that you use, because I think it's so visceral and so powerful and everyone can relate to it from so many different angles. Let me ask a follow-on. Are you signaling that the elephants are starting to dance here? That the legacy, if I can use that expression, companies that perhaps thought for a while their unfair competitive advantages were a challenge in the digital era. Are you suggesting that Disney's an example, and certainly not the only one we might be able to point to, that is able to get some business model traction in something that we thought was only the bastion of some of these you know, agile startups? A hundred percent. And even more than that, I think the world needs them to do this. You see, when I think about entrepreneurship, I think of entrepreneurship as looking out and building products and services that make the world better. And the reality is we've gotten really good at brand new small companies that hope to be big companies someday or what we've, you know, what you might call a traditional startup doing that type of entrepreneurial activity. 
But I think what you're actually seeing is these established businesses that have been around for 10, 20, 100 years, all of a sudden saying, you know what, we can be entrepreneurs as well. And people often peel back when I say that and sort of lean back like, I don't know about that. But it's worth remembering all of them were startups at one point. There isn't a company out there that wasn't at one point a brand new business. And if it's today a very large enterprise, that's because it grew from a small enterprise to a large one. And so these companies, not only can they do it, but they need to do it because we need to make sure that the problems that they have the capacity to solve, that they're actually attacking those problem areas. Which really sets up the opportunity, Sean, to have you explain a bit about the Carnegie Mellon Corporate Startup Lab. I mean, I think you've beautifully kind of set a foundation. Talk a little bit more about how it got developed and the original concepts behind it. And how do you view, pardon the expression in this context, the mission of what it is that uh, that the Corporate Startup Lab does? Yeah, thanks, Tony. So the, the Corporate Startup Lab is a lab that I started with one of my colleagues at CMU, Matt Crespi, and now I run. And it's basically a group of folks all across Carnegie Mellon, so literally from every school in Carnegie Mellon. So the computer science school, engineering, we actually have people from fine arts because there's design majors in fine arts, physicists from the Mellon College of Science, and obviously the Tepper School of Business, all coming together and figuring out, okay, how do you help startups exist and thrive inside large companies? And part of what I've come to appreciate here is I think startups can exist and thrive anywhere, including large companies, but the, the way they do it is a little bit different. And so, so how do we come to that conclusion? So backing up just a little bit, in 2016, I wrote a book called The Science of Growth, which was really a book that was targeting traditional startups, you know, the 10 to 50 person startups was actually the sort of target audience, according to the publisher, my agent and everybody involved in it. And those, those people have been great customers of the book. But the reason the book has done so well is lots of companies ended up buying it as well. And as I started spending time with the companies who were buying the book, I realized that there was this beginning to be this conversation, this question around what could large companies learn from startups? And, and then the more time I spent there, it really became a larger question of what can large companies learn from the tech industry at large startups and, and also places like Google, Facebook, those kinds of places. And I became very convinced that we were trying to carbon copy the things one for one, and that wasn't the right approach. So the corporate startup lab really started as a simple research question, which is how are startups in a you know proverbial garage similar or different from startups inside a company that might be 100 years old? And there are a lot of ways, I think, where they're very similar. And there are some ways where they're obviously different as well. So as an example of a similarity, I think in both cases, talking to customers early about what you have in mind is really valuable. And so there are techniques that we use in traditional startups that work well for large enterprises to talk to customers as well. When you hear large companies say, oh, we're using a lot of the lean startup methodology, I think that's really what they're referring to there. But there are other ways that they're very different as well. So for example, outside of the corporate startup lab that I run, I'm also a partner in a venture capital firm. And the reality is there aren't the equivalent of VCs for corporate activities. Like it's their finance different, they're budgeted for differently, the approval process is different. And so as we started to understand this, taxonomy of what's similar and what's different, we started building tools and conducting kind of further research on areas to help companies in the areas that corporate entrepreneurship is very unique. And that's really been the, the mission of the lab for the last four years. What comes to mind in hearing you describe the lab 
is also another conversation you and I have had where, if I'm paraphrasing appropriately, you, you actually said to me once, hey, it's not about digital transformation. It's what digital transformation can enable, which in the way you phrase it to me was business model transformation. How do you see that fitting into this idea of the corporate startup lab? So I think digital transformation is sort of the canary, if you will, that sort of helps people understand. But, the, but at this point, digital transformation, to my mind, is just table stakes, right? What we actually need to do is think about a lot of the things we pointed to in digital transformation and say, okay, if we have that cultural foundation in place, right, so that we're understand the value of customers and stakeholders and, and the whole process from our suppliers to our customers, to their customers, to the ultimate users of that. If we value the data that they're throwing off and, and learning both from qualitative and quantitative data, if we're truly cross-functional, if we have flexibility for different revenue models, then I think you can move to, again, what I often term business model transformation, which is basically taking those things and saying, okay, based on that, what are new business models I can bring to the market to capture value and deliver more value to my customers that may not have been options before? So you're seeing businesses that may have thought of themselves as manufacturers of devices moving to, uh, what if we had a, a SaaS business model where we added software to those devices and had a subscription offering to them, right? So that's kind of moving from a transactional business model to a subscription business model. You have other people saying, you know what? I have great relationships on, on both the supply and the customer side. I need to, to monetize value by connecting buyers and suppliers in new interesting ways and, and sort of look at digital marketplace business models as a way to flush that out. Maybe that you, you need to just more generally, like SaaS is one example of this, but maybe you need to look at how you can bundle offerings together in interesting ways and move towards more of a subscription model versus a, a single transactional model. And to me, like this is actually where things get interesting. And, and obviously Disney Plus that we talked about earlier is one example of that, but this is where things actually get interesting. And, and digital transformation was helpful to get your company ready for that. But the definitions I've seen of digital transformation they, they sort of fall short of this type of finishing the, the process in a way where you're actually changing your business model and really transforming how you think about your business model with the folks you're working with. It's a fantastic insight, Sean. You know, one of the other guests that we've had on the podcast who was coming at Industry 4.0 from a similar angle was basically talking about helping companies go from making widgets to products as a service. Yes. And understanding how to innovate with those business models. And boy, I think we're just in the manufacturing industrial markets. We're just at the precipice of this because the innovation on the factory floor has been going on for quite a while. But now that we are headlong into Industry 4.0, we're starting to see data coming from everywhere that's opening the eyes of a lot of companies and how they can start to think about innovating and not to overdo it, but innovating in business models and or aligning with customers in ways that they hadn't even thought of, i.e., you know, standing up a smaller production or manufacturing facility close to where the pockets of customers are and leveraging technology to serve those customers as opposed to absorbing the cost for having you know ship products or services all the way across the country. Yeah, I love that. I, I guess a question which you would actually know better than me, but as I'm hearing you talk about that, I'm thinking is like, so these manufacturers that are going through this transformation, I, I think the talent becomes part of that as well, right? There's both the 
retooling the talent that you have and then probably bringing some some new types of people into the mix as well. It feels like, and you're closer to it, but it feels like also thinking about truly product managers and the technology industry's version of that sort of handle of job will become really important for these manufacturers as they make that transition. Sean, you're, you're nailing it. And if you look at this, you know, I'm a, I'm a believer that technological change always precedes cultural change, right? We, <laughs> yep. we launch these incredible technological capabilities and then we learn how to harness them and adapt to it. You know, you've, you've been around right. this, you know, use the metaphor of the Silicon Valley for, for quite a while and seen the same thing where a lot of these companies were born of engineering and, and technical insights or, or capability. And then over time, as those businesses matured, product management came to the fore, marketing management yep. came to the fore, and, and particularly what you and I are describing here, which is, let's call it business model innovation. We yep. believe we're starting, and it's very early days to see the same thing in the industrial and manufacturing markets. If you think about the paradigm that they've gone through, their version of technology is the technology they use to produce their products and services. And they're waking up to realize there's a digital transformation of industrial sales, marketing, and business models that's now taking place as well. And I think I might even say that some of them are a little bit late to that side of it, but boy, are they working hard to catch up. So I agree with you. I think there's a, we talk about the skills shortage in the manufacturing industry. You and I are not just talking about the currently understood jobs where there's a skills shortage in this marketplace. I think you and I are defining new collar jobs of the future that a lot of these industries are, are rapidly going to need to be able to take advantage of the opportunities that are going to be ahead of them. hundred percent. I like that too, new collar jobs. I think the mix could be fascinating if you had those types of people who look at the world through sort of the lens of a product manager sitting next to the people who, who just bring so much domain customer and, and sort of operating expertise to the table. Like it's fascinating to think about what those industrial companies might look like 18 months after those folks started mixing the their insights together. Yeah, it's interesting for our listeners who might not know this, Carnegie Mellon is in one of the, the hotbeds, if you will, for advanced manufacturing. So are, are you interacting with some of these, you know, quote unquote, manufacturing companies that are going through some of these changes? And are, are you seeing some of this up close? We, we definitely are seeing it with some, of, with some of them, for sure. And I think also, I mean, your audience knows this, but at Carnegie Mellon, a lot of the sort of aha moment continues to be, wow, like manufacturing just means something very different today than it did, than maybe the perceptions people brought into it. But as, a, as an example, there's a large company, publicly traded company called MSA, which originally stood for Mine Safety Appliances. And so they were actually started by Thomas Edison. Uh, and some other guys to build devices that would tell people when to leave mines, like when a mine was not safe to be in anymore. So you can think of it as basically a device replacing the canary in the coal mine, for example. And over the last 105 years, right, the business has really turned that into a publicly traded company over a billion dollars that basically does all different types of safety equipment from hard hats to much more sophisticated today portable gas detectors. They worked with us at Carnegie Mellon to build a business within MSA called Safety.io, which takes the data on those devices 
aggregates it in the cloud and then does some uh, machine learning and predictive analytics to actually, instead of just telling you when it, hey, it's no longer safe to be here, to do kind of predictive safety of, hey, you should do this maintenance now so that you won't have a problem. Fascinating. And what I love about this example is uh, is a couple of things. Like one, completely in line with their mission. I mean, MSA is a very mission-driven company around safety, right? But two, you know, it's the kind of idea that, you know, after I started working with them on it, I was talking to a couple of my partners in the VC fund and they were like, wow, that industrial safety space is really interesting. We should look at a startup that could do that. And I said, here's the problem, you know, a new startup, a brand new company, how do they get the literally tens and tens of thousands of devices to solve the cold start problem? Right. And, and MSA already has that yeah. solved because of the yeah. relationships they have. And so it, it, it's not Disney plus, right. Cause it's an industrial example, but it's the same thing here's some advantages we have that a brand new company couldn't do. Let's solve this problem in the industrial space and in the manufacturing space that, you know, would be really hard to be solved other ways. And frankly, you know, we need that type of innovation that I think as we've gotten better and better at three people building a marketplace for 20 somethings, like we've missed huge swaths of the economy that need innovation applied to how they work and operate as well. Yeah, I love that example. To to me, it is in many cases, Sean, that is as powerful, certainly for the audience that we serve as the Disney Plus example. And I understand your point that it's not the same thing contextually, but I think it's a spectacular example. Hey, Sean, again, love having you on. And I'm going to ask you two more questions that we ask all of our guests. Okay. All right. So first question is, what's one thing you wish more people understood about manufacturing? Wow, I feel like you guys could answer this better than me. But I will tell you just from where I sit as a guy who, and Tony, you you knew me when when I wasn't a day to day entrepreneur. You know, I was I was very much in the whole quote unquote Web 2.0 entrepreneurial vein. And and what happened at Web 2.0 from from my perspective was a bunch of things converged at the same time to make it significantly less expensive to start the early parts of building startups. And you saw this explosion of tech companies on the back end of this. So Amazon Web Services making it so you didn't have to buy all your hardware right out of the gate. Applications for people who may be familiar with like Ruby on Rails, where you could slap components together in an efficient way to rapidly prototype something. And it just, it was a really fun time to be a software entrepreneur when we went through that. I'm not an expert on it. Like you people in your audience are obviously, Tony, like you are, but when I go around and I spend time at some of these more physical product startup accelerators today, like like Alpha Lab Gear in, in Pittsburgh and others like that, all of a sudden what I'm what I'm starting to realize is like, wow, building physical products has some interesting analogs to building digital products in the web 2.0 movement, right? You can rapidly prototype things. And and so to me, what's interesting about that is it means that that makes the future for manufacturing really bright because when you can do these things, when you can 3D print rapidly prototype small batch manufacture and then scale up, all of a sudden you're changing the economic structure of launching those kind of initiatives, just like Web2 changed the economic structure of launching tech businesses. And what I saw happen in, in the software space there was just an explosion of innovation. And my intuition is that you're going to, I'm sure you guys are already seeing the, the leading indicators of this, but the future is bright for manufacturing because of that. Yeah, I totally agree, Sean. And, and certainly all of our data would point to that. I think we're also starting to see a fair amount of, if I can use the expression, smart money, depending on how you want to um, <laughs> define that term, moving into the space. 
So I think, you know, manufacturing has, you know, been misperceived for years and that kind of stuff. I think based on a lot of the trends you're talking about, though, you're seeing a lot of enthusiasm, energy in and around the manufacturing arena. Hey, last question for us today, Sean. If you could put one sentence on a billboard that best expresses your personal philosophy, what would it say? I said this earlier, but I think this is really what's guided me for a long time, which is entrepreneurs really create the world the way it ought to be. And just to unpack that for a moment on, on the way out here, Tony, if you think about all the different ways that the world is more magical today than it was 20 years ago, whether you're thinking about the iPhone or Uber or Airbnb, there's, there's a entrepreneur behind each of those innovations. Now, what's interesting is that entrepreneur may not have started a brand new company around that innovation. I mean, Apple was a large company before Apple introduced the iPhone. But this sort of broader definition of entrepreneurship, there's an entrepreneur behind each of those. And so that's the definition of entrepreneurship. For your audience, I think the, the really important thing is we, like the world at large, needs your audience to think of themselves as entrepreneurs every day and do that activity every day, just like people in Silicon Valley do, because there's huge problems that they can be part of solving. And so hopefully with that definition, if you put that on a proverbial billboard or whatever, it would encourage more people to think about themselves as entrepreneurs instead of relegating it maybe to 20 somethings at engineering schools wearing skinny jeans and t-shirts, which is part of it, but certainly not all of the types of entrepreneurs that we need today. To learn more about Sean, his book, The Science of Growth, How Facebook Beat Friendster and How Nine Other Startups Left the Rest in the Dust, and the future of business model innovation, please check out the links provided in the show notes of today's podcast. The Thomas Industry Update podcast is hosted by Tony Uphoff and produced by Michaela Tierney. If you'd like to share your feedback about this or any other episode, please email us at podcast at thomasnet.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please take a moment to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or recommend us to a colleague. Your feedback helps us continue to advocate for industry across the airwaves. Want to get more insights on supply chain, IoT, industrial business, and more? Sign up for our Thomas Industry Update daily newsletter. With more than 300,000 subscribers, your inbox will be in good company. Subscribe now for free at thomasnet.com slash updates.